places where spirit meets life and the joys and challenges that may bring. You guys know I like to start by thanking Ms. Beverly Black and Tribe Family Channel for helping me create this space for us. Tribe Family Channel is home to an assortment of thought-provoking shows that explore life, spirit, business, and culture, including The Woman at the Well, hosted by Ms. Beverly Black herself. Somewhere in the Middle was born on Tribe Family Channel, and though we've grown onto our own platform, we are ever grateful and loyal to our roots. To paraphrase an African proverb, we are here only because we stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. I want to say thank you to my guest on the February 7th show, inspirational speaker and author Tawana Williams. You can connect with Tawana on social media. If you miss that show, make sure you listen to the replay. You can find our complete show archives, including the February 7th show at the somewhere in the middle podcast.com. I also want to shout out Bruce George of the Geniuses Common Movement, which encourages all of us to embrace our inner genius and share it with the world. This is a really important message, and I hope that you'll share it with the youth. But this message is not just for the youth. Sometimes we adults need to be reminded that the world needs our genius. Learn more about the Geniuses Common Movement at www.geniusiscommon.com. I am really pleased to introduce this week's guest. Darian Tanner is currently an 11th year secondary education English teacher and a second year instructional mentor in the state of Florida. She was born and raised in East St. Louis, Illinois, and this is where her love for education truly began as she was inspired by both her teachers and her aunts who were educators and administrators in the school district. Darian graduated from the College of Education at Michigan State University with a BA in English Education and completed her teacher certification program with a year-long internship at a local high school. Throughout her years of teaching, she came across great success on the school campus, whether it was through student mentoring or the classroom experience. Darian was presented with the Florida High Impact Teacher Award two years in a row because of the significant growth in her students' reading and writing state testing scores. She has a philosophy behind these results that's much bigger than a lesson plan or a special classroom assignment. And she developed a passion to share these principles with other educators. In 2016, Darian wrote her first ebook entitled, Finally Some Answers, 50 Classroom Solutions for the Secondary Education Teacher. Her newest book, Teacher Authority in the Classroom, It's Not a Battle, It's a Bargain, was released in August of 2019. 
In this book, she talks about the perspective of both educators and students when it comes to understanding teacher authority in the classroom. Three years ago, she developed a strong heart to help other educators in areas of student behavior and engagement. As a former ambassador for Teach.org and a live and online workshop presenter, Darian makes great efforts to reach educators and students across the world in hopes of impacting the world in an unforgettable way. So I would like to welcome Darianne Tanner to Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Burrard. Darianne, oh, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I, I truly appreciate it. Well, I'm really excited to have you because you have an interesting background and I really would love to hear all about it. So I'm going to start my interview with the two questions mm -hmm. that I ask and then uh, you share with us. Yes. Yes. Awesome. So Darianne Tanner, who are you and how did you become who you are today? <laughs> well, um, well, I, right now at this moment, I am, um, I grew up in East St. Louis, Illinois, um, with uh, my uh, father, mother, and I have a twin sister and I have a little brother. So I grew up in East St. Louis, um, the city of East St. Louis. And I grew up with um, teachers in the family. My aunties um, were teachers and superintendents and so forth. They just always loved education, um, loved the school system um, in East St. Louis during that time, even though it was very, um, had negative connotations to it being a, a predominantly black city, um, high school with um, metal detectors and things like that. Just a lot of violence and just not a lot of good things going on in East St. Louis at the time, but the schools were great. And so just growing up with great teachers um, in my life and also in my family, I am now uh, 11th year, I'm in my 11th year teaching, uh, classroom teaching. I'm a high school English teacher um, here in Orlando, well, Kissimmee, Florida. Um, and like I said, this is my 11th year. I, do, I did nine years high school and two years middle school in Michigan. And I attended Michigan State University, which is where I got my teacher certification. So I, I identify, I'm more than a teacher, but I heavily identify my, uh, with being an educator because it's a huge part of my purpose and my calling in life. So that's kind of just a little bit about um, me. And so a lot of the things that I experienced as a kid in East St. Louis and just in the schools is really what drove me and directs me now as, a, as an educator. So what kinds of things were going on in the schools? I mean, I, I, I am presuming that the violence and the metal detectors were a response to the violence in the, in the neighborhoods. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. was that carrying over into the schools or were they just kind of freaking out about it? I think they were kind of freaking out about it. And that's the interesting part about the schools um, is that even though we had to go through metal detectors every single morning, um, you know, take, I'm talking about taking shoes off. It was just, it was, it was just not, it wasn't good because it actually happened my senior year in high school. So I had to go through high school just regularly. And then mm -hmm. all of a sudden we combined high schools. And I think that's what happened. And so it was East St. Louis high school. And then there was Lincoln high school. And so I was at Lincoln high school. And they had to combine the schools and we were always rivalry. So I think that they were maybe thinking that. And so that was my 12th grade year when they had to combine. So mm. I'm thinking that maybe they thought it was going to be violence with the students because it really was a, you know, a, a, a rivalry. You really, even though it's crazy to me, but you, you know, the students at Eastside really hated the, 
students at Lincoln and we were so competitive. And so I think that the district feared that it will be fights and things like that. And so they had us uh, start off with, and then we also started with uniforms that year too. So that year we started out with uniforms and metal detectors inside of the high school, because now we have 2000 something kids, you know, cause again, we connected the high schools, which are both fairly large mm-hmm. schools by themselves. And so we connected, you know, connected them, combined them. And I think that's, probably where the fear came or just, you know, some precautions the district decided to make thinking that it would happen. But the the crazy part is I don't recall, I'm sure there may have been fights and things, but I don't recall being scared to walk the hallways. I don't recall lots of student fights or violence against the teachers. Um, although we walked in and that's, again, that's, uh, again, that's what inspired me because here I am in this quote unquote tough school with phenomenal teachers and learning a lot and growing and again, being a huge, this was a huge inspiration. Actually, my favorite teacher, one of my favorite teachers um, was at Eastside. And she was literally right. As soon as we walked through the metal detectors, her room was the first room you would see. So mm-hmm. I'm just, and so I'm seeing her sit here and I'm seeing, we learning about um, Duke, I mean, um, Langston Hughes. We were learning about Shakespeare. We learning about Gwendolyn Brooks, like all of these wonderful things in literature right across from uh, metal detectors, you know? And mm-hmm. so it, the teacher, so it proved to me that you can be in a certain neighborhood and environment, um, that there are some bad things that happen there. I'm, I'm sure there was smoking and drinking and things of like that. But again, like I said, I was shielded from that. And I was able to focus in on education and just the sports and things of like that and the friends and things of that nature, despite, you know, the negative things that were happening. And that kind of, you know, shaped my belief that the education can really change students' lives no matter what environment they come from. Even if the school is in a, in a bad neighborhood, it, that's how powerful education really is in having teachers that care. And again, like I said, that's what really drove me to become a public school teacher. And I've always taught in the inner cities and just in the areas that were similar to East St. Louis um, because it, it was a passion for me and I was inspired by, by that piece of my life. You know, I think it's interesting that you say you've, you've always taught in the inner city mm-hmm. because there are a lot of teachers or pe- I perceive, you know, mind you, I perceive, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. not going to say I know that many teachers, but, you know, it seemed to me that there were teachers who were scared to be in mm-hmm. the inner city schools mm-hmm. and inner city kids are pretty much like all other kids, right? Yeah. Yes, they are. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes. so what kinds of things, I mean, have you taught also in the, in the suburbs or just... I mean, are um, you seeing any significant differences from the suburban schools to the inner city schools? I um, I did middle school. It was a charter school. Um, and so um, two years in Michigan. And I did have, it was a little bit different because these were like kids of uh, Michigan State professors. And um, they were more, you know, well-off students, even though it was very diverse. So it was black mm-hmm. and white, um, pretty much black and white students. And so I... And they were younger, but I could tell the difference slightly um, in mindset. To be honest, I saw the initial difference in their, their mindset for, for education. So in the public school, you may see more of the, the beginning part of maybe, you know, the laziness maybe or just not driven or motivated and don't see the huge value in what they're doing versus the kids back in the, in the suburbs, the middle school students, they kind of were taught you know, like college is important and their parents were able to pay for a school. Well, this wasn't a, um, this school you didn't have to pay for, but it was extremely hard to get into. There was like a waiting list. Mm-hmm. And so, but I'm sure their parents groomed them for 
for education. They understood the importance of it and they were able to give them certain experiences that the students in this uh, public school system, well, some of them, again, is varies. There are definitely exceptions to this. So not all um, all the suburban, you know, students or not all of them have the same mindset. And I'm speaking and not all the public school kids have the same mindset, but just generally speaking, I think that the sub the students from the suburbs were more afforded different experiences that would kind of shape their mentality on the value of education more so than those in the public school. And so that's why they will come maybe with more skills mm -hmm. um, because their parents may have put them in reading programs or took them to the library, you know, at a young age, just the environment piece. But, you know, eventually once I start working with them, once you really get a hold of the students, they're all the same and they have the intent. They really do want to learn, but it's just, especially in the high school level, they mm -hmm. just been through the system of just not really experiencing real education that it's just like, it's kind of like it, it beat them up, quote unquote. And then right. I get them in 10th grade and they're like, okay, you know, I'm just so used to multiple choice tests, taking the test, taking those boring class, you know, just that's the system that they come from and that, that they haven't really worked. Mm -hmm. And so when I, when I get them, I have the opposite. I operate in a different way and I try to get, you know, I try to get them to understand that and it eventually works, but it takes time because they just haven't been rooted in that. As the suburbs, you know, most of those students have been, you know, they've been groomed and kind of taught and given experiences uh, to kind of prepare them for um, the life after high school or just academics in general, um, finances and, you know, being able to live maybe better in better home environments and just access to different things, right. um, I think is kind of the difference. But it, again, it takes some groundwork. It takes some work to get that mentality out of the, some of the public school um, students but once they get there and they understand they, they bloom and blossom just like any other kid well and then what do well you mentioned that that a lot of the kids may have just gone through the system in a particular mm -hmm. way mm -hmm. where that where they were not necessarily inspired to do better or to achieve mm -hmm. particularly so by the time you get them uh, mm -hmm. They've been kind of beat up on by the system in a way. What kinds mm -hmm. of things do you think that they have been dealing with as far as their education before they get to you? And how is what you do different? Okay. And, and, I, and it's funny because I really wish, and I always tell the story about we have a preschool next door to, literally next door to me in my, my mm -hmm. classroom. I just go out and you see the little preschoolers. And uh, one day I, uh, um, I was talking to the teachers and they were looking for... Uh, people to read, you know, to the, to the little ones. And so I, I had a, um, I have a friend, well, a guy I know who has an awesome ch children's book out. Um, and so I, I bought the book and I said, Hey, maybe I'll read this to the little ones. So we scheduled a time. I, I went into the preschool room. I read the book and I was just taken aback by how inquisitive and how engaging they were. And I asked questions and they make connect. I mean, everything that you want, the 10th graders to do, I saw this in these four-year-olds. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was just, a, it was really, a, I just, I mean, like today, this happened last year. I'm still talking about this experience because I just never, I'm just, you know, I'm just taken aback by, by just how open these kids were. And I was asking open-ended questions and questions. And then they would just make a connection with names, just everything that you would want to see kids do. Mm -hmm. And I'm uh, paying attention and they were a little wiggly, but they were really paying attention. It, it was just, a, it was an amazing experience. And then I walked out after having that done and then I um I didn't teach classes after that at the time um I only had morning classes but then I'll go and walk into classrooms or I go into my classroom the next morning and I just think about the 9th 10th 11th 12th graders the high school students and how at one point of time they may have been that four-year-old 
but mm-hmm. you know now you don't see that same um inquisitiveness you don't see that same um engagement and love for reading and just literature and just literacy so i in my mind i'm like i wonder what happened from the age four to 16. Mm-hmm. and so i've always said i wanted to do a like a case study to kind of follow because i don't know and i've interviewed and I've talked to like reading teachers and um, elementary school teachers just to kind of figure out where it happened. And I can't, and I don't know what happened. You know, I don't, I can't really nail. I wonder, did it happen in third grade? You know, I wonder, did it happen in fourth grade? When I look at some of my students and see how they start off so unmotivated and some of them are very, very low with fundamental skills. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because somewhere along the line in those crucial, in those crucial ages, Again, I'm not blaming elementary school teachers at all by far because it could have happened in middle school. It could have happened. I don't know. But they're missing those fundamental pieces that I'm thinking that they will pick up in early elementary school. And so for whatever reason, I don't know what's happening in the classrooms. You know, I don't I don't know what's happening at home. Something's missing at home. That's the I always talk about home being the most important piece. Home before school. That's my philosophy is it's important what's happening at home first. And then, so I think there are some things going on at the house, at home, and then the kids come, at, come to school, and I'm not sure if teachers aren't teaching, if they're not paying attention, if they're having things outside of school that's really affecting their ability to think or just to, you know, take education, get a hold of education. But um, is, if it's going to be the standardized testing, they're tested a lot. But I've always been puzzled, um, especially literacy, because uh, some of our students don't know how to read very well and don't know how to write very well mm-hmm. and um as 10th graders and this is all over i just talked with our music teacher um she's you know she teaches music how to read it but she's she can't even get to that point because they're so low with even just reading basic you know just some of the basics some of the students right. so i'm like what happened like how does that happen so i know it has to be something going on in the school system um where they're not being taught authentically um if there are some issues with classroom behavior student behavior you know teachers may not have the patience to endure that and then get to the bottom of being able to help the students again home things experiences at home because a lot of times kids come in and you know they just it's just trauma and just different things that they have to go through that's very hard to to negate when you are when you're trying to learn you know you're trying to get the lesson for the day so all of those components i think somewhere play along in that but when i talk about the school system i just think that Generally, we just haven't really um, taught students how to how to um, to really learn. Um, we have just been, you know, PowerPoint, give them notes. They figure out a way to study, give them a multiple choice test, and then keep moving. We really haven't taught students. Um, really, they really haven't seen real education in a sense. And, and again, I'm not talking about every school and every teacher. I'm just saying, right. generally speaking, the system is just not it's not a, it's not set up to teach authentically and we have this um, we have this philosophy this year at our school. Um, it's called read, write. I'm sorry, read. Yes, read, write, um, talk, and solve. And so we talk about how most students are just so used to reading and writing, even though they may not know what they're reading. They can pretend to read. They can fake it that they're reading, and they can write a paragraph or something and call it a day. I'm done with the class. But we never, as a system, never delve into talking and solving. And so one of the things that I do in my class, my class is verbal. We do a lot of discussion and I've had even parents come in um, and emails and things of that, you know, parents talking about, well, my kid, I don't understand how verbal grades are grades. I don't understand why my kid is graded on being able to speak 
versus mm -hmm. because that's just uh, the, the world it's just a, reading and writing nobody thinks that learning is also vocal being able to talk right. being able to discuss and my class is about 80 percent of that 75 percent of that and so it's, it's interesting coming in because i i get a rep now that i mean i've been there for nine years so people know okay you have miss tanner you're gonna have to talk in the class you're gonna have to discuss and she grades on that and you will actually take a zero for not speaking you know different things right because they don't understand that verbal being vocal is that's learning talking is learning and also solving is another issue too um kids aren't really taught to analyze and like to look deep into things and I, I see that now and that's what we're dealing with right now today um i'm giving kids text and i'm like okay what does this mean we don't do questions in the back of the book um uh, you know the questions that the, we don't do i don't do multiple choice tests in my classroom either everything is 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 uh, writing it out explaining it talking it out um, collaborating, you know, different things like that. And so they are not used to doing that because they were able to hide behind a multiple choice test. So all, all I got to do is circle A, B, C, or D. And even if I fail, at least I got through the day and it is what it is. But when you, when it's like, okay, there is no A, B, C, D, you got to really explain what you're doing and you got to talk in front of a group of people. So that means you have to know what you're saying. You have to comprehend. And right now, every, every year at the beginning of the year, we battle. It's just, it's a, it's a constant, like, you know, fight or challenge with getting the kids to understand that I, you know, I'm not letting up. You guys got to push through and you got to do this, but they just haven't been taught. A lot of them, I did, a, I did, a, I have an honors class and it's 38 of them. But now I no longer have 38 because they had to, we had to get, you know, they had to leave because that you can't have 38 kids with, you know, in the classroom. Mm -hmm. But anyhow, I had 38 and I asked them all, I mean, this was an honors class and I asked them all, I said, how many of you guys have ever been vocal? Like you had to talk. <laughs> in your classes and maybe six of them raised their hand. Mm -hmm. six but, you, throughout. but you know, there was a point at which the American education system basically wanted kids to sit down and shut up and just listen mm -hmm. to the teacher. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we're coming yeah. off of a, a whole generation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, that yeah. started in about the sixties, yeah. I think yes. really. Yes. Um, yes because I'm telling my age, when I say, <laughs> you know, but, you know, I remember going to school and there was a lot of sit down and listen. It was the rare yes. teacher mm -hmm. that encouraged you to just, that, that encouraged classroom discussion because they didn't yes. want things to get out of hand. Uh -huh, and they didn't want to uh -huh. have to calm the classroom. Uh -huh. Everybody was talking, particularly when you were in elementary school, middle school, mm -hmm. maybe in high school more. And I think that that's one of the challenges too, is that so many yes. of the teachers were really taught that that yeah. was how you teach. You teach yes. through lecture as opposed mm -hmm. to teaching through discussion and interaction, yeah. which that's mm -hmm. a more advanced concept. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. And not it's conducive all. to large classrooms, which most, most of our public schools have experienced large classrooms yeah, yeah. over the years. Yes. So, yes. How, so how do you, you know, you mentioned having 38, even though you weren't supposed to at that point, they had to uh, move some of the kids to other classes, but mm -hmm. how do you manage that kind of interaction in a class that size? Do you break them into groups? Do you, you know, just have one big discussion? What do you do to manage that? Um, um, I have, again, this is inside of the, of the book that I wrote. I have, and I've also, I posted on social media. I'm heavy on social media when it comes to teacher branding and things of that nature. Um, I have a philosophy called Rogers Clark, um, um, the, the Rogers Clark principle. And it's, um, in reference to uh, Mr. Rogers from Mr. Rogers neighborhood mm -hmm. and Joe Clark and Joe Clark from lean on me. 
and uh, talk about how they're both on the extreme of, you know, you have Mr. Rogers who has like the warmth and the friendly, um, encouraging type of feel to him. And then you have Mr. Clark who also has, is encouraging, but he has a, a, a firmer approach to, you know, what he's trying to do. And I talk about how I managed throughout the years to kind of grow the balance in between both. And so uh, as far as classroom management, um, I've had to do that. I couldn't do, I couldn't be Mr. Clark and I couldn't be um, Mr. Clark 100% and I couldn't be Mr. Rogers because if you're Mr. Rogers, you're going to get taken advantage of in today's culture. Mm -hmm. And if you're Mr. Clark, you're going to get some defiant and you just don't, you know, you just got to be careful in how you, you know, your approach and the kids today can't take certain, you know, rough, um, rough approaches like they did in those, like in our time, like I said, mm -hmm. we, were, we, we feared, our, we had reverential fear, respectful fear for our teachers because of parents, but that's a whole nother topic. It was just a home thing and we were just taught. But anyhow, I talk about that balance because classroom management is going to be a huge piece in being able to do that. And so I, I think just being direct with the students um, has really afforded me the opportunity to be able to um, see their respect for me as a teacher um, from the beginning. So from the beginning, I explained my you know, what's expected in the classroom. And I also, and again, it's a fair exchange. I talk to my students, like, again, as discussion-based. So I talk to my students all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things I talk to them. Like, we have this regular, like I'm talking to you right now, I have regular discussions with my students. And so when I go through rules, it's not like, all right, point number one on a PowerPoint. Is, I'm, everything is about discussion. I'm, I'm like, okay, guys, what do you think? What do you think about this? We can't have cell phones. And I explain why we can't have cell phones and anybody opposed. If you oppose, give me a reason. And we rationalize, we talk it out. Okay. And so I think a lot of times we have, and now they're not going to change my mind <laughs> because I'm, you know, I'm adamant. I'm like, we, we can't have the cell phones or whatever the policies are. But because, the, you know, they're older and I'm able, I'm able to sit and talk with them and reason out and things are fair, they, you know, they understand, okay, we get it. We understand it makes perfect sense. So, uh, and I've had to be firm and I, you know, I've had to show a firm side with the talkers and, and also one of the biggest things about classroom management and just being able to get that class condition to be able to um, discuss and, and be able to do it, you know, in the, in the correct way, effective way, um, you, you have to be consistent and you have to follow through. So again, if, you know, again, if you like, of course, when we start out talking, it's some things that you have talkers on the side, you have people, you know, maybe being silly or, you know, joking around. So then even though I give rules before then, sometimes I have to stop and then I have to, you know, manage and say, all right, um, I'm, we're not going to move on until you, you guys stop talking, you know, and mm -hmm. then we have to move you. So then I have to move you. And the one thing I do, I don't have a seating chart. Um, I think that's another thing, too, that gives me a lead. Now, I don't have a seating chart because what I do is they choose to cease and I use that. That's the starting reward. So they will lose it if they, you know, if they do something to lose it, they will lose it versus me just say, all right everybody sits here this is where you're going to sit for the rest of the year i give i open up giving them that option and then if they blow it they blow it but they can't say it's not fair because i gave them that so right. just little things like that you kind of do with the older with the high school you can do with middle school too because it's like you haven't want to blame i gave you the option it was right in your, everything it's in your hand you guys have a choice on what you're going to do with this and so i've never done a seating chart and so what i would do so they sit where they want to sit and they're excited about it so i've been able to use that as leverage whenever they're it's too many talkers. All right, guys, I'm going to move you um, because you guys, we can't discuss together. We can't. And so they're like, okay, you know, they kind of get it together and figure it out because they don't want to move. So I just use little small principles 
um, just little small things and strategies throughout the throughout the time. But uh, I do um, I do address um, for the most part openly if something is done openly. I mean, I, there are sometimes I pull kids out and talk to them. But again, like I said, everything is like a big it's like a big family, and we have a conversation. The kids know my expectations, and they've seen what happens when you don't. And I've had to hold my ground on. All right, guys. So we're not going to listen. Then this is what I'm going to do. And so I have a strike system. Now, of course, you can go to strike 25. Kids won't, you know what I'm saying? So the strike system is not what really works. What really works is that if I get to strike three, whatever the consequence is, I actually do. Right. That's, that's, that's what they're looking for. So you can do strike one and strike two and strike three. But mostly my strike three is if we're doing discussion or we're talking and we're working together, which they love to do, the strike three is all right. Obviously, you know, you guys aren't listening. And this must be you want to do independent work and then we're going to go independent. And they, you know, and they like, oh man, this is, you know, so right. you kind of, I kind of balance that. And I, and I hate, and I do not like to do it. I hate when they get to strike three and I want to give them more chances because I want this to work, but I had to just, okay, I got to show you guys that I really mean what I say. And when I did that, the one time I did that or whatever for the different classes, a couple of then they were like, okay, this is this is what's going to happen. And then now they get on each other about it. So now they are policing each other and I don't have to say, anything but it's just I have to make you know I have to get those rules and those policies and also I'm huge on bullying or making fun of people I we nipped that in the bud at the very beginning uh, because I want all my students to be able to talk all the shy kids and you know mm -hmm. the, and I've always been able to even some of my kids that stutter they love to read out loud and the kids are just you know they becoming it, it grow it has to grow to that I'm not saying it starts out perfect right. then I don't have to tell a couple of people you need to apologize so it doesn't start out perfect at all. It's actually a struggle sometimes. <laughs> you know, it's just struggling yeah. part sometimes. But eventually we get to that point and I'm able to get the class, that type of climate. And then we're able to, the kids are comfortable and they're able to have discussion and do the verbal quizzes and they and they'd be okay, you know, with, with that. So, Well, you know, what's funny is some of the things that you're saying, I actually attribute to uh, uh, being part of good parenting. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. I believe that you set expectations, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. This is what I expect of you. If I get anything other than what I expect of you, then we're going to have to talk about it. Mm -hmm. I think that it's really important for parents to talk with their children, not just at their children. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to let the children know that they have a choice in how things go. Mm -hmm. I remember having to tell my son more than once, listen, if you do not want this reaction from me, you have uh -huh. all the control because mm -hmm. you can just do what you know you're supposed to do. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And then you won't get this reaction from me. Mm -hmm. You control mm -hmm. the situation actually, because you mm -hmm. already know what's going to happen when you don't do what's expected. Right? Right. Right. So you have a choice. And I think that children just like, and I think children, even small children, Mm -hmm. um, respond well to knowing that they have a measure of control in their lives. I think uh -huh. that that's part of the human nature. So it sounds like what you're really doing is just treating the kids like people. Uh huh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. You're treating them like human beings, which that's yeah. all anybody wants, right? Uh -huh. It's to be treated uh -huh. like a human being. Yes. Hmm. That's good. I, I never really, I mean, I, I know 100% what you're saying, but I never really thought about that now, I'm listening to you talk and I'm like wow that, I guess you know I guess you know I guess that is true actually 100% true um yeah, yeah I, I agree um I mean you would think that people would but like you said if you look at the the way 
the system has changed and how you were expected to fold, you know, put your hands in and not talk versus mm -hmm. now. Yeah. You will see that, that shift. Well, your latest book is called Teacher Authority in the Classroom. It's not a mm -hmm. battle, it's a bargain. What does that title mean? Tell us about your book. Okay. The funny, the, it's what's interesting. It means exactly what you just said. <laughs> okay. And so when you talk about teacher authority, and I use the word authority on purpose because a lot of times, you know, we, it, the authority has a negative connotation to it. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, and it's unfortunate because authority is is a very awesome thing. You know, it's a good it's a good thing to have. But I talk about in the book how, you know, of course, slavery and racism and things like that have made authority look bad because we have those in authority, you know, treating, you know, other people, you know, bad, you know, in a, in a negative way. And then, of course, just things that are going on with the government, um, kids seeing their parents do the wrong things, and so you they've seen authority in the wrong light. Mm -hmm. And um, and the world has it's just a universal thing. Submission, all of those words are, are all of that has a negative connotation to when you think about the word authority. But I kind of talk about how authority means it's just you have someone that's that's in a position to lead, so we can have structure and order. So you know, leadership is not a bad thing. Authority is you need a you need authority. You need a leader. You need someone in the classroom to lead and guide. You know, so I kind of have to kind of change around and help people understand that authority is not a negative thing where that's why I kept teacher authority in the classroom as the title but the the um it's not a battle it's a bargain actually is what is exactly what you said about um agreeing agreement so I had a um I have someone I consider a brother of mine he's um really good with literature and just words and, and language and he was sort of helping me come up with a title for the book mm -hmm. and as I was explaining to him what I really wanted to have I was just kind of I didn't, I couldn't figure out the title. It was just one of those things where it's like, okay, that's it. That I just couldn't figure it out. So he got on the phone. He was kind of helping me as he's, as I'm explaining the purpose and the intent. He said, why do you keep saying that it's a battle? It's a struggle. Classroom management is a struggle. It's hard for, he was like, is it a battle for you? And I said, no, it's not a, it's not a battle. It's not hard. He said, well, don't put that on the teachers. So don't even introduce it as a challenge introduce it as something how you see it and then he said let's do a play on words so he took battle and he was like actually it's not a battle it's a bargain because that's what you're talking about when you're talking about working with the kids you're talking about getting an agreement with them like you guys agree on you know what's going on it again if the cell phone goes away then you'll be able to learn if the cell phone goes away, you know it's, so you're coming up with, to the kids not with just hey no cell phones no this you can't do this you can't do that but you're coming to them with an agreement. Like, let's make an agreement. You do this, I do this, and we both win. So mm. that's the whole philosophy behind it. And as you said, I'm treating them like people because people, we agree. You know, this is becoming, when we deal with people, it's like an agreement we're making with each other about whatever the purpose is or whatever we're trying to um, mm -hmm. accomplish. So that's what, that's the whole, that's what the book is all about. Once you, I mean, of course, I go into details about certain things and certain principles but that's what it's about just stop for teachers to stop seeing beforehand just seeing classroom management or just student misbehavior as a negative thing oh it's just going to be a battle it's just going to be a struggle i'm not going to be able to do this and start thinking about and looking at the kids as your you know your your enemies in a sense that you're battling with them but seeing okay wait a minute i don't have to battle with the kids let me see if we can, i can bargain with them let me see if i they, i can reason with them and not reason as in letting them have their way, but we, right. both of us, both, it's both of us, both of us, you know, will get what we're trying to accomplish. I'm, as a teacher, I'm going to see you succeed and I'm going to see you learn. 
and as a student, you're gonna act, you're gonna succeed, and you're gonna learn, and you're gonna you know pass the course. And you're just gonna be learning things you need to learn. Both of us can come out at the end with something, and so that's where the bargain came with in regards to agreement. So that's the that's the philosophy behind um, the book, um, in a nutshell. You know, you mentioned something that made me wonder, mm-hmm. and it was teachers feeling like they've got a battle or like the students are their enemy. And mm-hmm. you hear the same thing related to policing, mm-hmm. particularly in predominantly black and brown neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how much of that is, again, there's a, this generation, in my opinion, has a different level of assertiveness, self, uh-huh. self-awareness and self-assertiveness uh-huh. and mm-hmm. self-pride mm-hmm. Yes, yes. in who they are as individuals and as a group. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder if what we're not seeing is some generational conflict mm-hmm. that we hmm. just don't understand. And I'm, I'm lumping myself in that because of the age group. I, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not, I don't teach kids, but I remember just thinking, why, why is everybody so mad at all these kids all the time? Mm-hmm, <laughs> like, you mm-hmm. know, they talk so bad about the millennials and this, that, and mm-hmm. like, these kids are not doing anything different than what we did mm-hmm. 30 years ago, mm-hmm. but they express themselves differently mm-hmm. and they express themselves much more assertively, I think, than, than we did. And I, yeah. I mean, and I'm, assuming we're close in age, I don't know for sure. But that's what I feel like is happening. And I'm wondering if we're seeing similar type things almost with other authority groups like the police, that there's well, just yeah. not an understanding that they're, mm-hmm. they're, this is a different generation and they're not going to yeah. entertain things the same yeah. way yeah. because they communicate differently. The technology is different. The world is a different place. And to some extent, both sides have to, like you said, come to an agreement on how they're going to build community and how they're going to work together. Is yeah, that something yeah. that you're experiencing in, in the schools in particular? Are you seeing it in other areas that overlap? Oh, yes, for sure. And, and it's interesting that you mentioned that as well, because I talk about um, uh, his name is Officer Norman. Um, I saw him on Instagram. And he's a white police officer and just, it's been years, but around the time when we had, even though there's police brutality still going on, but around the time where it's really getting heavy mm-hmm. um, in, the, in the media, he comes out, he's, uh, I want to say he's in South Carolina, he's somewhere um, stationed, but he works in the, it's a predominantly black city that he, you know, he works in. He may even live there. So he's a, he's a white police officer and his whole brand is that he goes into the community, um, and he and it's not for show. I mean, he just he's he's doing this on he's showing on purpose because he's trying to change the narrative. Mm-hmm. So so this is something he's been doing even before there was an Instagram. So he doesn't do things for show. But anyhow, but he go he he goes to visit people. It's almost like he has his own TV show on his, on Instagram because he it's it's this community of people he meet. He go and visits them every day. He's video. It's like we know him personally. Um, and it's a black community. It's an older couple. It's a a man that just turned 100 years old wow. there are kids that he so it's like a community of people he going busy he has a breakfast club three of them that he takes the breakfast um every every almost every morning so he gets into their lives and we're able to see how they're you know their lives and their growth and just what they're doing on a day-to-day basis the good things they're doing just their daily life in the in the inner city mm-hmm. and it changes the it changes and it's like this white police officer 
and right. they're so comfortable around him. It's like it's no color. He just goes and he talks, he gives gifts, and they jump on him. They love you and all types of things you see. And it changes the, you know, it, it, it changed my mind. And I talk about in the book how I even, as, you know, as a black woman, I felt a little bit uneasy around white male police officers. You know, I haven't been pulled over but maybe once or twice, but still, you know, I was thinking that if I get pulled over by a white cop, a well, male cop, I'm even going to be a little uneasy. You know, I, you know, I'm just like, oh my gosh, so I got to deal with this. And what's going on? And of course, because of the media, just different things that's happening. Mm-hmm. And so when I saw Officer Norman's page, and I follow it, and I look, you know, I'm look forward to seeing some of the things that was going on with the characters and with the people and what's happening. Uh, with him he just got married and he married oh. a black woman and they just bought a house you know so it's interesting he even married you know he ended right. up marrying because of people i'm not not that he had to but he's so engrossed in the community that he has a black woman and he, his wife i mean his mom who is white she goes out just like him you know it's like it's no nobody sees color at all you know as right. far as as far as like physically like it's just okay it's it's a normal thing which is the way it should have been right. but anyhow me seeing him I put that in the book um, as a way of changing, you know, the mindset of authority. And I, and, and like I said, it's so interesting that you talked about police officers because I did that specifically to prove that point that, again, the kids have a negative connotation to authority because of what we see in media. But then it can be, we can change the narrative by being, you know, by doing the opposite and portraying that things that it doesn't have to be that way. The authority can be good authority. You know, people can be good and authority is a good thing. Like you don't have to see police officers, you know, as racist per se, if you see an examples like Officer Norman, there are Officer Normans out there. Right. So I specifically talk about that for that reason, because we do see it everywhere else. Uh, we do see the disrespect, you know, um, with, and I call it disrespect because I mean, the kids are, even though they have a story, they, they're disrespectful, you know, too. And even we have police officers on our campus. And I was just talking about this a week ago we have the police officers on our campus. Now one is white and one is, is Hispanic. Um, and I can kind of see where the students don't take them seriously at all. Like the students aren't afraid of them and they are, you know, they're the police officers. And so in my day, I'm, I'm sitting still at a police officer. He walks in, you know, cause he got a gun. I'm, oh my gosh, I'm going to do whatever he, you know, whatever he says, Since, you know, that was our philosophy. These kids today, they don't care who you, you know, they like, they, they, you know, they kind of, they'll go back and forth with them and, different because they know that ultimately nothing can happen they can't do anything so the kids have a different mindset so i see that in the school with the police officers and i've heard stories in the past with security guards and and um nurses and the principal all of the just different all of the authority have um even when district comes in to observe we have someone from district that means high up there so they come in to observe the teacher the teacher's so nervous the kids know they looking at them they don't care you know, they're going to do whatever, use them for fantasy. I, I, I just saw, a te- I had a teacher who teaches a class and he had someone from district and the kids were disrespectful to her. You know, they didn't care who she was, where was she from, you know, just different things like that. So mm-hmm. I see it. I see it spill over. Um, and it's not just the school, it's in the society and older people, I don't see the same respect for the elderly um, that we, that I used to see. Mm-hmm. I don't see the same respect for just women. Sometimes people would just respect women or girls. It's a girl, it's a woman. Right. Let's, you know, let's care for her. Let's make sure she's okay. I just saw a video this morning going on Instagram. You know, so it's just, it's a, it's a cultural thing. And it just so happened to get into the school because it's a cultural, <laughs> it's a cultural platform. So, right. Of course. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yeah, I've definitely seen the trend. So I know, that's why I don't take it to heart. Like, because I know 
it may not necessarily be personal. Um, I deal with it, but I, I know that, okay, if they're coming in a certain way, it's just not with the teachers. It's with, it may be with their parents, you know, it may be with, it's the, with the police officers, it's with the president of the United States, you know, just different right. um, things that they see and, and, and challenges they have with, um, with authority or just all older people or just those in leadership positions. It's, they have a different perspective. Um, some, some good things and some things that, they, that are not good, but they definitely have, a, it's a different culture, it's a different generation today. So if you had, you know, just three tips to give to a new teacher coming in, you know, somebody straight out of school, mm-hmm. just finished their, they're bright and shiny and new, like a new penny mm-hmm. about to go into their first classroom on their mm-hmm. own. Mm-hmm. What would you recommend to them, particularly going into middle school or high school? Give them three tips. Mm-hmm. Okay. To how they can establish that relationship with the kids and make their, uh, classroom a more uh productive environment okay well the one thing well the first thing i say is just to um have the confidence in who they are as educators and just the journey um they travel to get there before anything else educators just have to find themselves valuable and just um they have to know that they have a huge part to play in in first and foremost they have to know that like anybody coming in you have to know that you can do great things with the students and that you have a lot to offer as an educator. That's the first thing I say. And so that all involves self-care and taking care of yourself. But before anything, and like I said, every day, sometimes I have to reflect on my journey that I'm, I can do this. I'm made for this. I can be you know, a blessing to these, these students. And I, you know, I love, you know, I, I love my kids and I love, you know, I, this is what I was, you know, want to do, not even born to do. This is where I am. This is a season. I can do this. I have a vital part. I'm important. I'm important. That's what it, I am important. That's the first thing for teachers that, that they need to understand with themselves. Second, I would just try to get a hold of being able to authentically educate the students and know what that really means and what that really looks like and aim for that, even though it's going to be some bumps on the road or it's just going to be some challenges. There's sometimes you are going to be systematic. And there are times you have to go with the system on certain things. Um, but if if the educator can understand and get a glimpse of what real education is and fight every day as far as with their lesson plans and just structure and creating things to be able to authentically educate their students because they know that they're doing the best service they can do. They're doing great things for their their students if they're able to really educate them. So they can get a grasp of, of what really education really means and how to really educate, which is a learning process, but it can be done in the first year. Um, I would say that'd be the second thing. So outside of just having confidence in themselves and what they can offer, understanding what education is so they can fully prepare their students and really get the most out of their students um, and for their students to get the most out of of them. Like I said, it's an agreement. Um, The third thing I would say is um, consistency and being persistent. I'm going to always talk about that balance with um, Mr. Rogers and Mr. Clark as far as the kind of personality or the, you know, the kind of the person, again, not, making you have to because I'm not a funny you know bubbly person it's just not me and I've always felt like since I was quiet I may not be that great teacher because I'm not you know these um you know I'm not expressive and loud and funny but when I understood that within my own personality that I needed to be I have to have a firm side that's one thing I want teachers to understand you have there's a point where you have to be okay with you know getting a bit firm 
with your students about not strict, but firm, just a bit tougher, and and it can't be moved on certain things that's going to be helpful for your students, like their their behavior or just their laziness or giving them that push and the motivation, that it's good to have both the firm side and the warm side. So somewhere within whatever personality you have, whatever style you have, just somewhere in there kind of mix up that firmness with that warmth. And I, you think you'll do pretty good with, you know, discipline things or just do pretty good with your relationship with the, with your students. So those are the, the three things I'll kind of share uh, with teachers the beginning day for their beginning days. That's awesome. Awesome. So Darianne, how can people connect with you? Can they find you on social media and how can they get your book? Okay. Yes, I am on um, Instagram as Teach Miss Tanner. So that's T-E-A-C-H, Miss M-S Tanner, T-A-N-N-E-R. And so I'm heavy on there with the messages and the DMs and I stay pretty consistent and I um, connect with and network, network with teachers, uh, many teachers on that platform. Um, also, I have a website, um, www.amentorforteachers. So that's the, the letter A, mentor, M-E-N-T-O-R, the number four, teachers.com. So again, www.amentorforteachers.com. And also that's my email address as well if you want to reach me there at a mentor for teachers um, at gmail.com. And the book can be found on the website at www.amentorforteachers.com. You can go there, or if you're on Instagram, it's in my profile. You can just click on the link in my profile. I mean, you can it will direct you right there for the for the purchase of the book. So, though that's a way to get the book and get access to me. Um, and those those are the avenues to take. Awesome. Awesome. So guys, make sure you reach out to Darianne Tanner, especially all you educators out there. I know that you are all working on your craft, working on your, your classroom management, you're, you're increasing your skills and so forth and networking with other teachers. Reach out to Darianne at Instagram, teach Ms. Tanner, T-E-A-C-H-M-S-T-A-N-N-E-R on her website, a mentor for teachers.com, A M E N T O R, the number four, T E A C H E R S dot com. And you can get her at her email address, a mentor for teachers at gmail.com. Darianne, thank you so much for being on Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Berard. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this um, conversation. I, I truly appreciate it. Next up, our good friend Julia Black will be joining me for True Talk. I know building a website can be intimidating, but you need a place where your audience can connect with you. Instead of fighting with technology, try the easiest, most flexible website builder available. With templates for all types of websites, ranging from landing pages to e-commerce, Urban Book Editor's platform makes creating an author website quick and easy. Just add a section, Upload your photos and videos, type your text, and you're in business. It couldn't be easier. And if you sign up for an annual plan, you can get 10% off the first year. Just use discount code FIRSTYEAR. That's 1-S-T-Y-E-A-R. The number 1-S-T-Y-E-A-R, in all caps. Take advantage of the 14-day free trial. No credit card is needed. 
visit urbanbookeditor.com and select Create Your Author Website from the menu bar at the top of the page. No more struggling with technology. No more paying a small fortune to developers. Create beautiful websites without learning to code. Spend more time writing and less time worrying about your website. Just go to urbanbookeditor.com and select Create Your Author Website. You'll see how easy it is to build a great website to showcase your work. Go to urbanbookeditor.com and select Create Your Author Website today. So I'd like to welcome Julia Black to True Talk. Hey, Julia. Hey, Michelle. Well, we have had uh, a little bit of a discussion here about this concept of how people deal with things when, well, things aren't going so well. You know, the, the problem solving aspect or the thinking through aspect. Um, and that can be a challenge, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, what, I, what I'm finding with a lot of people um, is that things can be challenging and there's a focus on kind of complaining or it becomes a um, almost a situation where, oh, well, things are never going to change and my life is so terrible and it's easy to kind of spin out of control without actually trying to move to focusing on solving the actual problem. Um, and different ways to solve the problem. So even if someone complains to me about something that's happening and I go, yeah, I can see how that would be frustrating, but here are some ways to solve it or here are some suggestions that here are some things that we can do. The answer is always, oh, but it's not going to help anyway. So it doesn't matter. I'm just, you know, and they, they, they just focus on complaining all the time without trying to fix it. Um, and that creates a life that can be very frustrating and depressing. Well, yeah, it only reinforces whatever the challenges are if you kind of have an attitude like this is always, this is, and I think those are key words. Oh, it's always happens. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, and I, I fall into it too. Everybody does sometimes. Oh, everybody does. You know, we all do, mm -hmm. especially when we're extremely frustrated or aggravated. But those keywords always or never, things mm -hmm. like that. Nothing is always, nothing right. is, is never. <laughs> right. And so well, when we're yeah. using those words, that's usually when we're feeling the most victimized or mm -hmm. the most powerless and the most frustrated. Yeah. And we're not really in a productive, you know, kind of a productive place because, you know, there's room for bitching, right? Oh, yeah. No, because th things happen. We're all going to bitch about it. Like that, that, that's normal. That's to be expected. It's when it's, it's when you refuse to move on and try and fix how you're feeling about it or fix the problem that makes it unproductive, right? So mm -hmm. if I'm talking to somebody and they're complaining about something and I try and start solving it and the answer is there's no point, and you're stuck in the, well, my life is always going to be terrible or the situation is never going to change. Um, and there's no point. This is just going to be a waste of time. There's no point. It's like, no, that, no, you can, so, you know, e even if you can't solve the problem, there are ways that you can 
fix the way that you're looking at it or there are ways that you can um, reframe the situation so that it's not quite so um, difficult, right? And usually it's overwhelm. Usually yeah. it's overwhelm more than anything else. You know, we're feeling agitated because we don't feel like we have power in the situation, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I don't want it to sound like we're, we're kind of saying people don't have a right to bitch. Everybody has a right to complain um, to the extent that we are also trying to solve. Yeah. So, you know I what mean, I mean? I think, yeah. I mean, there are always going to be things that happen that upset us that we have. You, th that's always going to happen. There's, it's not like we go through life thinking, oh, well, everything is wonderful and nothing is terrible. It doesn't work that way. But, um, but that doesn't mean that we spend so much time bitching about it that we start to spin or that we start to feel trapped in our situation um, and we fixate it on some we fixate on it so much that it feels like it's ne like nothing that nothing's ever going to change like we're like we're caught in this cycle of um, unhappiness you know well and i am going to say this too and this is you know you know i'm a mom and yeah, my kids, my, my kids like to complain to me sometimes about things. And one of the things that's been challenging for me has been sometimes just listening and letting them mm -hmm. get all of that out so that they get, can get to the point where they can. Because yeah. sometimes you, I know I used to do this. I, t I talk to myself. People working computers always talk to themselves, right? <laughs> and I don't know why we do it. Probably because we're around inanimate objects so much of the day. But, you know, working in computers for all those years, what it really did was it, I talked to myself constantly. People thought I was a lunatic, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. And, but that talking is part of that process, I mm -hmm. think, of starting to, work through it because you really kind of start digging into how you're feeling about it yeah and what your what your I, I think your spirit is trying to give you in terms of information and tools to start the problem solving process so so yeah from I mean, the other side of it is you have to kind of be willing to you know hopefully you have people who are willing to listen to some extent as well while you work yourself toward that point yeah, and it doesn't have to be, but it doesn't have to be something that you talk through either. I mean, sometimes, sometimes I want to talk through it, but a lot of times all I need is a journal. But, you know, we've talked about this before. Yeah. I love journaling. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a fan of journaling. I think, I think it, it really, the, the interaction of you and the journal, and it's just you solving the problem and figuring things out and sharing your feelings and knowing that you are listening to yourself. And like, for me, um, trying to put a word to how I'm feeling is a, is a big step in me being able to get through it. Um, because it moves beyond just being unhappy that something is happening. It's helping me pinpoint what is, what in particular I'm, is bothering me about it. And then once I know that, then I can move on and it's easier for me to get to the problem solving part. 
but the key is whether you talk through it or you write through it or you sing through mm -hmm. it or you dance or whatever your, yeah whatever your, you, yeah your way is it to get through the what i would call the complaint phase mm -hmm. and get into the resolution phase yeah yes you know um mm -hmm. But that is a part of the process, I think, for everybody. So, yeah. you know, I don't know. I think, I think that's been one of my challenges, like I said, is to listen. And I, hopefully there are people out there who recognize that sometimes their role is, is just to listen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So if someone is having a challenge right now and they're thinking about ways that, you know, they can address these challenges. What, what kinds of things would you recommend? What are maybe three or four things that you might recommend to them? Um, I would say absolutely complain and bitch about it. Absolutely do that. Um, but work to find out, um, but get to the point where you're ready to work, work through it and pinpoint the emotion and the, the, the thing that's really bugging you about it. Um, and once you do that, then you can actually move past it. Um, and then two, start devising a plan, um, to help fix your circumstances, whether or not you can fix the actual problem. Um, there are plenty of things that you can do, um, to help you feel better about what's happening, whether that, you know, if you hate your job or the people at your job are, um, toxic or, you know, there's a structure at work that you don't like, whatever that is, even if you can't fix that, then start making a plan and go, okay, I'm going to re I'm going to revise my resume. Um, and once I do that, then I can start applying and I can see what other jobs are out there. Um, and if you, you know, there are, and if it's something that's family related or it's something that is friends related, then, then find other ways um, find things that you can do that even indirectly um, can help you plan around it because that um, I think you said before it gives you a little bit more control um, and it makes you feel like you're not stuck um, because I think when things go wrong um, particularly if we never move past the, the kind of bitching phase it can be very very easy to feel stuck uh, and feel like you're not going anywhere. And that further helps you feel more like a victim and like things aren't gonna change. So if you can start planning and changing little things, then it will be easier. Uh, it, you'll just feel better about the circumstance. You can see that things are moving, even if they're not moving about the actual issue. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, totally. And then, um, and then honestly, um, kind of, spoil yourself and do those things that you don't do very well um, because you're too stressed out, right? So like find ways to appreciate kind of the good that is there or find, find things to do that you know are going to make you feel better, right? So for me, I always really, really love going to the beach. Um, so if I can plan a half, so if I'm really stressed out, if I can plan a half a day because I live far from the beach, then I can drive to the beach and I can stop and like put my toes in the sand and pay attention to how that feels and how the breeze feels on my skin um, and, and what the smell of the ocean is and those kinds of things and just kind of stop and be really present and mindful 
in, in kind of how wonderful things feel at that moment. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a beach related thing. I mean, if there's a dessert that you rarely give yourself, like go out and splurge on it and then spend time enjoying every bite or, um, well, I can give an example that's not even even anything that you might consider a rarity. Uh, you know, just working by yourself, if you're a solopreneur or if you work remotely and you're often a little isolated, just going outside mm -hmm. and enjoying the beauty of the sky. Or like out here, you know, I, I tell you this all the time, like I actually find it is so beautiful here. Just driving on the highway and seeing the mountains in the distance just blows me away every single time I see it. And it does, if you really look at these things, even something as simple as just looking at the sky, going out on your uh, front porch or on your uh, balcony, if you have one, or going outside and taking a quick walk and just looking at the sky, it just amazes you if you really pay attention. <laughs> you know, like, like it is so beautiful. It doesn't matter if it's overcast, if it's blue skies. We live in such a beautiful world. And yeah, yeah. taking a moment to appreciate that, just something as simple as that can shift things for you, and, you know, just mentally a little bit. And yeah. often clear your head to help you start with the problem solving part. Right. Absolutely. Because I think, you know, when you're stressed and when, when they're, you know, things are, things are not going well, it's, it's, it's hard to, to get yourself out of that. But if you just take the time and go, okay, what is really, what, what is really going to make me feel good right now? Then go do that. Um, you know, get a pedicure, go for a walk. Yeah. Um, you know, buy yourself a new purse, like <laughs> go to the park, do something that is going to, um, that you need to do. That's going to actually make you stop and go, okay, where you can just feel kind of the good things that are happening and the good feelings so that you can, to help you clear your head. And the, only, the last thing I'm going to say here um, is just, you know, guys, if anybody is in a, a very difficult or abusive type situation, definitely, definitely don't just try to reframe. Yes. Okay. If you are in a difficult or dangerous situation, a violent situation, something like that, I encourage you to get out as fast as you can and to um, develop a plan if you can't just get out the door. If you can't just walk out right now, I understand some people can't do that. Maybe their kids or different things that may make the situation more difficult, but start developing a plan. Mm -hmm. Start strategizing because you are worth it. You do not have to entertain crazy. I do not believe in entertaining other people crazy. You should not entertain other people crazy in that regard. Yeah. And that is, and that is really important, you know, see if you can, you know, try and find someone that is, that, that can help you, that can keep your secret and can help you plan um, and help you work through things. Um, because that is absolutely, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. You should not stay in any kind of abusive or toxic relationship. So with that said, our three main things that we want to give you guys to take away is Definitely get your bitch on bitch, 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 but move through the bitching and to the problem solving. Uh, if the situation is not one that you can just walk out of right away or jump out of quickly, 
make a plan, start devising a plan to get out, start strategizing and just bide your time, but definitely make a plan to get out and then execute your plan. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, while you're developing that plan and while you're waiting to execute your plan, definitely focus on the things in life that are still satisfying, even if it's just as simple as, as the sky outside. And you guys take care of yourselves, right? Yes. All right, Julia, thank you so much for being on True Talk. Thank you. Well, that's our show this week, guys. You can reach out to me online at urbanbookeditor.com or michelleberard.com. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram as Urban Book Editor. Send me a note. I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to send in some topics you'd like us to cover on the show. Make sure you tune into the show on March 13th, when my guest will be business coach Anna Robles. You can find us twice a month on Fridays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Mountain, 7 p.m. Central, and 8 p.m. Eastern at the Somewhere in the Middle Podcast.com. Let's continue the conversation. You guys be good, stay mindful, and remain prayerful. Peace and blessings, y'all.